Have you ever wondered if we're going to find E.T., you know, extraterrestrial? Or wait, what if E.T. might find us? But the real question is, are we going to find a life elsewhere beyond Earth? In this episode of Tom Sidecast, I talk about that question. Will we find a life somewhere in the universe? So, if we're going to find life, we have to know what to look for. And I've talked about that in previous episodes, like, what is life? But we also need to know where to look. Where might we find life? At a first pass, one of the best places to look, of course, is the habitable zone. Now, I'm going to make some assumptions here. We're going to be looking for a life that is carbon-based and in water. And even NASA's, like, their mantra for searching for life is look for the liquid water. So that informs us where we might have a habitable zone. So a habitable zone, in a nutshell, is the distance from a star at which liquid water could exist on a planet's surface. You may have heard it as the Goldilocks zone, too. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. Now, that might sound really simple. But, uh uh-oh, there we go. It gets complicated quickly. Because it's not just the distance from a star where you're going to find liquid water on a planet's surface. You also have to have sufficient atmospheric pressure. And there we go making something very simple already more complicated. So as you can tell, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to go into the Goldilocks zone. And it's also professionally known or scientifically known as the Circumstellar Habitable Zone, the CHZ, or the Goldilocks Zone, or the Habitable Zone. Okay, we know it's going to be complicated. So let's dive right in. To start looking at the layers of complexity of the habitable zone, it's like an onion, right? It's got layers. Aren't that like ogres or something? They got layers? Well, that's how the Goldilocks zones are. The bottom line here is we're looking for liquid water on the surface of a planet. Okay. I know you're already thinking icy moons in the outer solar system. We'll come back to that. But for right now, let's stick with liquid water on a planetary surface, much like the Earth. This is going to depend on temperature and pressure. So temperature is going to be a function of the size of your star and the distance from your star And pressure, which is your atmospheric pressure, is going to depend on the size of the planet. Because larger planets can have a thicker atmosphere. Smaller planets might have a thinner atmosphere. And even planets with the same mass can have atmospheres that are incredibly different. Earth and Venus comes to mind here. So if we look at the habitable zone in our solar system, Venus is just outside of our habitable zone. It's just a little too hot. 
it gets too much solar radiation, right? There's too much energy flux coming from our sun. As a result, Venus does not have liquid water on its surface. And we'll talk more about Venus later. Earth, on the other hand, is obviously right in the middle of the habitable zone. Or we're in the habitable zone. We're well within it because, well, we have liquid water on our surface. And if we go further out, Mars, it's at the very edge of the habitable zone. It turns out that if you go to the Martian summer and go to the equator and the lowest point of Mars for about 70 days, it gets just above freezing and with the atmospheric pressure. And for very short times, you can actually have liquid water on the surface of Mars based on this habitable zone. And I know you're already thinking, wait, haven't they discovered liquid water underneath the ice caps of Mars? Or could there be liquid water as an underground aquifer in Mars? Maybe. And there probably is. But we're talking about surface water. And you might be thinking, well, what if Mars was bigger? Let's come back to that. Because as you can see, this habitable zone concept is complicated. But let's get back to our stars here. You know, a habitable zone is dynamic. It can change over time. And the reason why is because a star's output changes over time. So over the lifetime of a star, they basically become hotter as they consume their hydrogen. If you remember, you know, stars are these giant balls of gas of hydrogen and helium. And at the center of these stars, in a main sequence stars, what they're doing is they're fusing hydrogen to form helium. That, of course, is nuclear fusion. And over time, stars will go through their hydrogen, forming more and more helium. And as they do so, stars heat up. So if we were to go back about 4 billion years ago, our sun was about 25 to 30% dimmer. And I go back 4 billion years ago because... That was the origins of life on our planet. Now, I know that the exact origin of life on our planet is not definitively known, but about 4 billion years ago, give or take, it could have been a little bit earlier, it could have been a little bit later. But the point here is that 4 billion years ago, in the Hadean, beginning of the Archean, 3.8 billion years ago, our sun was dimmer, and that would have made the habitable zone potentially closer to the sun. That means that something like Venus, who is no longer in the habitable zone, could have been well within the habitable zone in our solar system. And then slowly, over hundreds of millions of years, stretching into billions of years, our sun has slowly been heating up, and eventually Venus was no longer in the habitable zone, but what about Mars? Was Mars always in the habitable zone? Or did it become into the habitable zone later as the sun grew warmer? And that is a good question. And we will come back to that. I know. I, uh, I keep saying we're going to come back to things. Because like I said, I want to just talk about these stars, these stars early on here. So we know that stars change their output over time. And uh, our sun is going to be stable 
more or less for the next billion and a half years. But that stability, even though it's stable, is still going to continually warm up. And what I mean by that is going to keep putting out more and more energy as it slowly burns through its hydrogen. And sometime around one, one and a half billion years from now, the sun will be hot enough that the earth will no longer be in the habitable zone because we will be too hot. And then eventually, our sun, like all stars, what they'll do is they'll run out of hydrogen. And at that point, they exit the main sequence. And as they exit the main sequence of stars, they begin to swell and form a red giant. And uh, in about 4 billion years or so from now, our sun will swell and it will swallow Mercury, Venus, maybe the Earth. We don't really know. But the point here is, when the sun exits the main sequence of stars and becomes a red giant, the habitable zone in our own solar system will then be out in the outer planets. It will be Jupiter and Saturn. So think about that. Earth will no longer be in it, but the moons of Jupiter, like Io, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto, the moons of Saturn, like Titan, they will then be in the habitable zone. So as you can see, habitable zones, they change. They change over time depending on the star's age. So that's pretty cool, isn't it? Not only do stars change over time, but when we look out in the galaxy, we've realized that there are many different sizes of stars. And the size of a star is also really important for the size of the habitable zone. Now stars, they vary greatly in size. At the small end are the tiny red dwarfs, and they might be 0.08, less than one-tenth the mass of our star. And then the largest stars by mass are the blue-white supergiants, and they could be up to 150 times the mass of our sun. We would say there are 150 solar masses. As you can imagine, they are enormous and quite bright. Although, while these uh, blue-white supergiants might be the most massive stars in the galaxy or the universe, they're not the biggest in terms of size. We have what are called the red giants. Now, these are stars that have exited the main sequence. Remember, they've run out of their hydrogen fuel, so they begin to swell. And the largest ones, wow, they can be huge. For example, a star known as Canis Majoris, one of the biggest stars we know about, has a diameter that is 1,500 times the size of our own sun. To put that into comparison, if we were to plop it in the middle of our solar system, its orbit would reach Jupiter. Another way to think of that, how big it is, imagine you were in a Boeing 747 jet. Now it takes about a couple days to fly around our planet. In the same jet, it would take you over a thousand years to fly around Canis Majoris. A thousand years. That's how big that star is. It's not necessarily the most massive star in the universe, but it's one of the biggest ones in terms of its size. 
So as we know, this habitable zone, the Goldilocks zone, is going to change over time based on the age of its star and what type of star it is. And it's also going to depend on the size of the star. So the size of stars ranges from the smallest, the red dwarfs, also a class M star, all the way up to these large blue supergiants and red giants, which include the class O stars. Let's start with these red dwarfs or class M stars. They're interesting to say the least. First, they are the most abundant star type in the galaxy and recent surveys of stars indicate that they might represent 85% of all stars. That's wild, isn't it? Ironically, despite being the most abundant star in the galaxy, you can only see one. One, that's it. Only one is actually bright enough to be seen with the naked eye. Even the closest one, Proxima Centauri, at 4.2 light years away, you can't see it with the naked eye. Now, despite being dim, there are, like I said, billions and billions of them in the galaxy. To make them even more interesting, we've discovered that maybe upwards of 30% of these red dwarfs have what we call a super-Earth orbiting them. Now, super-Earths are larger than the Earth, but smaller than the ice giants known as Neptune and Uranus. And of course, super-Earths would be rocky and would likely have water or could potentially have water, which is good because we need, you know, a rocky planet with water on it, at least as far as we know. And because they're much larger than the Earth, actually not much larger, they're going to have a thicker atmosphere, at least potentially. Now, if you're orbiting a red dwarf, these stars are really dim. And like I said, despite being the most abundant star type in the galaxy, you can only see one. You can't even see the closest red dwarf to our planet, Proxima Centauri. Now, that being said, because these stars are much dimmer, they're putting out less energy, or we could say less energy flux. What that means for the habitable zone, you've got to be close. You've got to be really close to your star. And in fact, the habitable zone for some of these red dwarfs is so close that the planet orbits it in just a few days. We're talking like one-tenth of an astronomical unit. These planets are closer to their star than Mercury is to ours. And once again, that reason to have liquid water, you've got to be closer. Now, another interesting thing about these red dwarfs, they live a very, very long time hundreds of billions of years. Because they're so small, they go through their hydrogen really slowly. So you could imagine that there are easily red dwarfs already 10 or more billion years old in our galaxy, which would allow for a very long time for a planet to remain habitable before the red dwarf exited the main sequence and swelled up into a, into a I don't know, a dwarf giant. And in fact, Red dwarfs are so long-lived, I don't think any of them have actually exited the main sequence because the age of the universe isn't old enough yet. Wow. So lots of time for evolution. They're abundant. And 
we think that like 30% of them might have super Earths orbiting them. So that means that there are potentially billions of super Earths orbiting these red dwarves. And you're probably going, oh man, life is absolutely abundant if that's the case. However, or should I say, unfortunately, sadly, I'm not sure. But there are problems with these red dwarves. One problem is that the planets have to be very close to their star. And red dwarves are known to be highly variable. For one, we've observed red stars, red dwarves, with these intense flares where they double their brightness. I mean, they have 100% brighter within just a few minutes as they release these enormous flares. Could you imagine our sun like doubling in intensity in just a few minutes? That would be pretty brutal for life on Earth. Now, not only do they have intense flares where they like double in brightness in a few minutes, they also get dimming from star spots. And they might become 40% less bright over a period of months. Could you imagine on the flip side of that? Here's our sun. Oh, wait, in a few minutes, it's, it's twice as bright. Oh, now we're going to have three months of dimming where it's now 40% less bright. That would have a pretty big impact on life on this planet. For one, if you were dimmer for months, you know, that could lead to like large amounts of ice covering our Earth as it cooled off. And this is confounded by the problem of the narrow habitable zone very close to the star. If the star is kicking out intense flares, those flares could effectively strip away an atmosphere and any volatiles on that planet's surface. So you could imagine if a flare hits you, it's, you know, your sun is doubling in intensity, that flare hits you directly, it could rip away much of your atmosphere and start to remove the water from that planet's surface. So that's a problem. There's also another problem. I know, I'm being pessimistic here. Not only might you lose your atmosphere, you might get bombarded with lots of ultraviolet and x-rays from these stars. And x-rays and ultraviolet light has enough energy to break apart water molecules, break apart organic molecules, and be very rough on life on a planet close to these stars that are, you know, sending out all of these intense flares. But another problem with being very close to your star is you can become tidally locked. Our moon is tidally locked with the Earth. We only ever see the same side of the moon. That's why we have the dark side of the moon. It's not really dark, it gets light too. But the moon is tidally locked with the Earth. One side always faces us. And if you're a, a planet around one of these you know, dwarf stars, you might become tidally locked where one side is in perpetual day, the other side is in perpetual night. And as you can imagine, that would create some very uneven temperatures. However, taking that back, this is the optimistic side. There have been models that have shown that if there's water on the surface of these planets, then cloud cover can distribute the heat, you know, keep it cool on the day side, keep it warmer on the night side. And ocean currents could effectively transport heat from the day side 
to the night side. Much like on our planet, we have heat being moved from the tropics to the areas in the poles, like Antarctica and the Arctic. Now, of course, I mean, we can add layers of complexity and speculation about position of continents and all of these things and factors that could affect, you know, energy transfer on one of these tidally locked planets. But at least theoretically, a tidally locked planet doesn't have to be inhospitable to life. Okay, now for a little more optimism here. I know I was pessimistic about life around these red dwarves. But the red dwarves might be similar to our own star in terms of being active in their younger age. And in fact, it's been thought that the reason why life really didn't get started on the surface of our planet until the Silurian, like you know, 450 million years ago, is because our sun was more active. There were more solar flares. It was kicking out more coronal mass ejections, more ultraviolet light. And that basically prevented life from successfully colonizing the surface. And then around, you know, 450, 500 million years ago, our sun entered into middle age. And as it entered into middle age, it became more quiescent, less flares, less cycling. And if a red dwarf does the same thing in its lifetime, maybe in 10, 20 billion years from now, a lot of the older red dwarfs will also enter into middle age and they will become more quiescent with less intense flares and less dimming from star spots. And as a result, now those planets in the Goldilocks zone might have time to like evolve life on them if they have enough volatiles left, if you haven't completely stripped them all of their organic molecules and water. Just speculation here. If red dwarfs are the smallest, let's consider the largest size, class O and B. These stars are enormous. I mean, they're like 100, 150 times the mass of our star. And they're very bright and they're very short-lived. The larger a star is, the shorter its life. And the reason why is because it burns through its hydrogen more quickly, you know, of course, converting it to helium. Whereas our star, will be a main sequence star for six, maybe eight billion years. A red dwarf, maybe a trillion years. These blue supergiants might live 10 million years. So as you can imagine, that's probably not enough time for life to get started on a planet, even though a habitable zone around one of these stars might be quite large. The problem is, it's only going to be a main sequence star for a few tens of millions of years. And on Earth, well, we don't really know when life got started. I always throw out 4 billion years. But that's still 600 million years after the formation of our planet. So in these very large stars, it's just really unlikely that life would get started. And of course, there's one more problem. Not only are they blue... Blue has a shorter wavelength. They also put out intense UV. And a problem with intense UV is that ultraviolet light splits water, splits molecules, including organic molecules. And that makes it very difficult for life. So looking for life, I definitely would probably rule out the largest stars. 
Going down to the smaller stars, ones like ours. Ours is a class G star, and it's got an effective temperature around 5,200 to 6,000 kelvins. These stars are typically yellowish, yellowish white, and they range in size from like 80% uh, the mass of our star to a little over 10% bigger. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, you know, a star like ours might be the best place to look for a habitable zone. And it's good. I mean, obviously, we have life in our solar system based around our G-type star. And at a first pass, looking for Earth-like planets in the Goldilocks zone around a class G star would seem like the most logical or the best starting place to look for life in a habitable zone. But our star might not actually be the most conducive to life. I know, that's weird to think that our Earth, teeming with life, might not be around the best star for life. And I just want to point out this one observation here. Our planet is 4.6 billion years old. It took life, as far as we know, about 600 million years to form, to show up. It could have it could have come on a lot earlier and just been wiped out and we have no evidence of it. And it could have come a little bit later, but let's just peg it at 4 billion years. Animal life, complex life, complex ecosystems with plants, animals, multicellular life didn't arise until the Earth was already 4 billion years old. Actually, 4.05 billion years old because animal life is only about 550 million years old. That's it. The majority of the time of life on our planet was simple. Single-celled organisms for billions of years. And it's only been fairly recently in Earth's history that we've had complex life forming complex ecosystems in both the land and the water. And like I said, it's been speculated that it could have been the variability of our own star. Think about it. Our planet has gone from a cryogenian, covered in ice, right all the way down to the equator, to other times it was a hothouse with no polar ice. There's lots of reasons for these variability in climates. Some of it has to do with our some of our own planet dynamics of the movement of, of the continents, but also there has been changes in our solar output as well over billions of years. And like I said, based on studies of other stars like ours, our star was maybe just a little bit more active in its past, which could have slowed down the evolution of complex life and the development of complex ecosystems. Now, that being said, we do know that life can actually get started around stars like ours. So could there be something better? Is there a Goldilocks, so to speak, of star sizes? And it turns out the answer is yes. Based on some theoretical modeling, it's been hypothesized that orange dwarfs, class K stars, now these are smaller, they're a little bit less brighter, they range in temperature from about from about 3,700 to 5,200 kelvins. And uh, they are light orange, pale yellow, and they're about half the size to about 80% the mass of our star. Now these stars are even longer lived 
than ours. They're also very stable. They put out less x-ray and less ultraviolet radiation. Remember, ultraviolet light is bad for water and for organic chemistry. Not only that, class K stars are three times as abundant than our stars, than a class G star. So, wow, here we go, abundance. Now, the question is, how many of them have Earth-like planets or rocky planets in the habitable zone? Because one trade-off of being a smaller star than our sun is that your habitable zone is going to be a little bit more narrow, just based on energy flux, but still much larger than the M dwarfs. And uh, you can be far enough away from your star that you're not going to get tidally locked with it inside of your habitable zone. So there you have it. The habitable zone, this Goldilocks zone, is really dependent on the age of the star, where it's at in its life cycle, and the size of the star. Okay, it doesn't stop there. There's more to this story. And of course, it has to do with size. The size of the planet also affects the habitable zone. And at a first pass, it was thought we need to find planets about the size of the Earth for life. That would be best because that's our one sample. However, based on some modeling, there are some indications that planets a little bit larger than the Earth might be more habitable. I know, you're probably thinking, how can something be more habitable than the Earth? I mean, there's life everywhere on the Earth, from the poles to the equator to up in the atmosphere, in every nook and cranny and extreme environment you can imagine, there's life. How could you be more habitable than the Earth? Well, let me point out some things to you. You know, animal life has only been around for 550 million years. As I just said, you know, we've spent 3 billion years of life on this planet as single-celled organisms, as our planet has oscillated between extreme cold in, the, in these global ice ages called the cryogenians, or hothouses where, you know, the climate gets much hotter and there's no ice on the planet. So why would a planet slightly larger than the Earth potentially be more hospitable. Okay. The idea of a super Earth being really habitable, really conducive for life, is one, they're geologically active, much like our planet. And in fact, they could be geologically active for longer than our planet, just because they're bigger. Second, they would have a thicker atmosphere. And that thicker atmosphere could protect them from ultraviolet light and X-rays and maybe dampen down some of the climate change. And they would have a stronger magnetic field, which would be very important if you were around a class M star or a red dwarf that's throwing out you know, coronal mass ejections. If, if you have a strong magnetic field, then you could deflect those charged particles. And if you're larger, you're gonna have a stronger pull on the gases in your atmosphere, which would slow down the rate of atmospheric loss. So you could imagine, you take a super Earth and you put that around a class K or M, you could potentially have evolution going on for billions and billions and billions of years. 
and in a class K star, you may have actually gotten life going really early and leading up. I'm speculating here. I'm really, really, really speculating. But you could have had a ratcheting up, an increasing of complexity much more early on in their evolution. I mean, could you imagine like our planet with a habitable zone that's going to last an additional four or five billion years from where we are now instead of just one, one and a half? Well, that's a super Earth around a class K. And uh, if it's around a quiescent, uh, you know, a, a class M star, a red dwarf that's not very active, you could have life going for billions and billions of years. And I'm not talking about just microbes. I know, speculation on top of speculation. But hey, that's what we do here at Tom Sidecast. We speculate. Because it's fun to speculate. I mean, you have life going on for billions of years. You ratchet up in complexity. You're not getting nailed by your home star. Your planet is more or less stable. Wow. I mean, that gives you more of a chance for intelligent life to evolve. Advanced civilizations. Let's speculate here. You know, your best chance for finding ET, extraterrestrial life, might be around a super... Earth orbiting a class K star. And that would also mean if we were to find advanced civilizations, that would be a good prediction to find it. Now also, size matters for these planets because it also affects the habitable zone. I know, it's weird, right? We think of the habitable zone as based on the amount of energy coming into that planet. Let's add more complexity to the Goldilocks zone here. I'm sorry, the circumstellar habitable zone. We'll just call it Goldilocks. Let's start with a thought experiment. Imagine that Mars was much larger. Let's imagine it was 1.3, 1.4 times the size of the Earth. That would mean several things. One is that it would have a much larger atmosphere. Two, it would have a stronger magnetic field. The magnetic field, of course, would protect that planet from the solar wind, so it would keep its atmosphere. And if it's keeping its atmosphere, well, we are almost certain that Mars once had water and lost it because it was too small. It lost its magnetic field, and over time, its atmosphere was stripped away, and all the volatiles on the planet are basically lost. Not all. It still has ice at its poles. But if Mars was bigger then it would still be in the habitable zone. And right now, Mars is at the very edge of the habitable zone. It's just almost too cold, but with a larger atmosphere. And there's a lot going on here, right? You have higher pressure. Water can exist as a liquid at cooler temperatures under higher pressure. Bigger planet, bigger atmosphere, you can actually be cooler. That would mean that a super-Earth could go further away from our sun and still remain habitable. So that tells you that the Goldilocks zone isn't just about the amount of energy reaching a planet. It's also a function of the size of that planet and the amount of energy reaching that planet. Because the size of the planet is going to affect its atmosphere, the magnetic field to protect that atmosphere, right? And the pressure at the surface and not only that, an atmosphere, if you have water, 
methane, carbon dioxide, greenhouse gases can trap heat, which would extend your Goldilocks zone further out. So a planet like Mars is at the very edge of the habitable zone, which is also determined by its smaller size. Like I said, if it was just a wee bit bigger, or a lot bigger actually, we could have a very different solar system. Now, that is a lot of complexity. But wait, there is more to this story. I know, there's more, right? To think about. Water worlds versus arid planets. These things could also matter in determining the Goldilocks zone. So for example, an arid planet like Tatooine or Dune. Less water would mean less water vapor with less of a greenhouse effect. That means it can move closer to its star. Less water also means less ice to reflect heat, so it could be further away from the star. However, if you have less water to reflect heat, you, you might not have as much of a greenhouse effect, so that could counterbalance. So imagine our another thought experiment here. Let's do some more speculation. Let's imagine I switched Mars and Venus in their orbit. Venus is almost exactly the same size as our planet. And if it was even larger uh, at the orbit of Mars, it would still have an atmosphere. It would probably still have liquid water on its surface. It'd probably have life. And it wouldn't be a runaway greenhouse effect because we think that Venus, as the sun warmed up and maybe combined with some intense volcanism on that planet, sent it into a runaway greenhouse effect. Mars, on the other hand, being too small, lost its magnetic field, lost its atmosphere, lost you know most of its surface water. Now, if we moved it closer to the sun, it would probably have still have lost its atmosphere over time just for the fact that it's small, so its magnetic field would, would shut down more early. But it would be warmer, so any water still remaining in aquifers or underneath the ice caps, you might just have a little bit more liquid on the surface and temperatures more conducive to life hanging on. Whereas right now, it, it's really cold on Mars most of the time. But if it was at Venus's orbit, Venus is currently outside of the Goldilocks zone, but because Mars is smaller with less atmosphere, less greenhouse effect, it might've been just warm enough, not too hot, for life to still be maintaining itself there. I mean, life could still be hanging on on Mars too. We just don't know. Very exciting to think about. And good reasons to go explore that planet. I mean, we have to keep exploring, right? Now, I know that some of you are going, but what about the icy objects in our solar system? What about those ice moons? What about the ice oceans? Yeah, definitely. And in fact, some of the best places to find life in our solar system might not be in the traditional habitable zone, but they might be these icy moons of Jupiter, like Europa, Ganymede, and, Callis and Callisto, especially Europa, or the icy moons of Saturn, like Titan and Enceladus. And there's very, very, very compelling evidence that Europa and Enceladus have liquid oceans with salty water. And those moons are nowhere near the habitable zone 
looking at, you know, the energy fluxes from stars. Now that is pretty wild. I mean, think about it. Not only could life, of course, exist in the habitable zone, like an Earth-like planet, but life might exist on other moons or bodies in a solar system orbiting other planets. Now, the reason why like Europa, Enceladus, and Titan have liquid water, and they're not just frozen solid, is through geologic activity. If you put something like the size of the Earth way out, I mean, as far as Neptune or Pluto even, it doesn't matter. The Earth is still geologically active. And as long as a planet is geologically active, it's going to have, if it's got water, it could have liquid water. But the moons of Jupiter and Saturn had these ice oceans due to what's called tidal friction. So Europa is between Io and another large moon called Ganymede. And of course, there's Jupiter. And as these moons pass each other, it causes tidal friction, which makes it warm. And in fact, Io, the innermost moon of Jupiter, is the most volcanically active or geologically active body in the entire solar system. And then right next to that, of course, is Europa. And then when we go to Saturn, well, there's Enceladus, right? Tiny little moon, very small, but yet it's, it's got some tidal friction in there, causing it to heat up and have liquid water. Finding life on these icy moons inside of an ice ocean on Europa or Enceladus or something else like Ceres or Pluto or Triton, any of these bodies or Titan. I said Triton. That's another moon. That would just greatly expand where life could exist in the universe. Much beyond the Goldilocks zone. We really don't know how common these moons are, but they're common in our own solar system. So I would suspect they're common everywhere. I know there's problems with that assumption, but it gets even better. Here's more optimism for you. There are free floating planets. These planets have been ejected from their solar system. Once again, there are billions of free floating planets. You could imagine Jupiter getting ejected out of our solar system with its moons. Those moons would still be geologically active. Europa would still have an ice ocean, maybe with life, and it would be completely uh, separated from its star. Isn't that wild? There could be life on free-floating planets wandering the galaxy between the stars. You could imagine a, an Earth-like planet or a super-Earth getting ejected from a solar system. And this probably happens all the time because many solar systems have two stars, three stars, you know, there are these complex systems and, you know, they, they have, it's a three-body problem, right? And these stars could eject planets out of their solar system or stars coming nearby could, you know, cause an ejection. And the Earth, if, if the Earth were to get ejected out of our solar system today, well, because our planet is geologically active and will be for a very long time, life could continue to hang on all the way until the Earth cools when we run out of radioactivity to keep geological processes going. So even an Earth-like planet, let's say it got ejected at the dawn of life or even before life, life still could have gotten started and we would have enough geological processes to keep liquid water. Most of our oceans would freeze over, obviously, 
but not where we have thermal vents. That would remain liquid. So there you have it. Searching for life, lots of potential places. However, admittedly, searching for life on free-floating planets will be very, very difficult. However, we might be able to find life on our own ice oceans, on our icy moons in Jupiter or on our icy moons orbiting Jupiter or Saturn. And when we turn our, our observatories, our space telescopes, good places to look are class G stars, class K stars, those, those yellow dwarfs or orange dwarfs. And of course, I say we still keep looking at the dwarf stars, the red dwarfs, the class M. Even though there are some issues with that, they are the most abundant star in the universe, which means that potentially there's a lot of variability in those stars and we might get life on them. So the next question would be, we have all of these potential places to look. And yes, looking inside the Goldilocks zone for right now, outside of our solar system is the best place to look for life. Because like I said, trying to find life on icy moons, on exoplanets or free floating planets is well beyond our capabilities at the moment. So we do need to focus in on that Goldilocks zone. So the next question and a topic for another podcast would be, how are we going to find it? What, what do we look for or what signatures can we look for? Well, this has been another fun episode, for me at least, of Tom SciCast. Until next time, stay curious.